Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil alemin. Ve sallallahu ve sellem ve barak ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Allahümme alimna ma yenfa'una ve anfa'na bima allemtena ve zidna min fadlika ilman ve ta'lima inneke ala kulli şeyin qadir ve ba'd. Esselamu aleykum ve rahmetullah. Elhamdülillah we are now on page 74. So we're making some progress here. And as I mentioned probably in the beginning of this class, the book for us will probably end in the 250s, 260s, because the last section of the book, if you look at the color difference, these are all just salawat and du'as. So the text itself ends before that. So we began this section or this chapter let me go to the beginning the ethereal realities in the physical attributes of the Prophet and we said that what the author is doing essentially is demonstrating not just the Shema'il as a collection of physical descriptions, but also the khasais and the unique uh, aspects of his physical features as they relate to the ummah and as they relate to other matters of, of knowledge that Allah gives him. So he talks about the height of the Prophet ﷺ. He talks about the uniqueness of the blessed face of the Prophet ﷺ. He then talked about the uniqueness of the blessed eyes of the Prophet ﷺ. And then the hearing, and then the arms. And last week we left off on the section regarding the uniqueness of the touch of the Prophet ﷺ. So we read the first narration in this section here. And the narration is from Imam Muslim narrating the hadith of Ubay ibn Ka'b. And what do we say was the unique thing about Ubay ibn Ka'b? What is he known for? Right, he was one of the master reciters. So the canonical recitations of the Qur'an, you know, those who heard the entire Qur'an transmitted from the Prophet ﷺ, he's one of them. And this became his specialty. And in this hadith, we see that he knew the Qur'an, and he was receiving the Qur'an, and reciting the Qur'an, and understanding the Qur'an, yet there's still something there. And what he required to get that out was the touch. It was the touch of the Prophet ﷺ. Now the next uh, section is still on the touch. There's about three sections after this that relate to touch. And we left off here at the bottom of page 74 where he says, the Prophet's touch removes obstacles. He says it's also related 
in the famous hadith of Sayyiduna Umar, when the Prophet asked him, How much do you love me? And Sayyiduna Umar replied, I love you more than everything besides myself. Then the Prophet said, None of you believe until they love me more than themselves. And he struck Umar upon the chest. After which he said, I love you more than everything else, including myself. Then the Prophet says, said, Now you have it, O Umar. Now you have it. Al-ana, ya Umar. So this hadith, it is related in a few different narrations. And the shortest form just mentions Umar saying, Wallahi, I love you more than anything else except myself. To which the Prophet ﷺ said, No one will have complete faith until they love me more than everything else, including themselves. And then this shorter narration says that some moments elapsed, what you would call in English a pregnant pause. And after that, Omar says, well, now I love you more than anything else. And the Prophet ﷺ says, Al-ana ya Omar, now. So between these two narrations, we have some additional information here that when he said that, the Prophet this. So this, if we take the hadith of Ubay bin Ka'b before this, and this narration and put them together, we see that in both situations, there's something missing with both. Ubay is struggling with something, he's not grasping. Umar radiallahu anhu is still missing something. Then, then after the prophetic touch on the chest, it's gone, it's removed. And then you have him saying, I love you now more than anything else, including myself. Now, something that I find really beautiful about the narration of Ubay and this narration is that both Ubay ibn Ka'ab and Umar radiallahu anhu were very honest about their condition. Right? You go to, you know, go to any Muslim and say, do you love the Prophet sallallahu more than yourself? Most Muslims would say, yeah, of course. And for us on the outside, we don't, you know, you can't doubt people. You know, you take people at face value. But maybe their statements and actions and lifestyle belie that, give lie to that claim. But the point is that Umar radiallahu anhu, this towering mountain of Iman, when he's in that situation, he doesn't pretend to be other, other than what he is. He doesn't act as if he loves anything more than himself. He's, he has the Prophet sallallahu in a subordinated position relative to the love he has for himself. And here the Prophet ﷺ says the person's iman isn't complete until their love for themselves and everything else is subordinate to the love of the Prophet ﷺ. So there's an honesty with him that is really refreshing because you know, he's not pretending to be pious. He's pious, but he's not pretending to have a, a maqam that he doesn't actually have. And that's the way they were.
Now the next narration is another very beautiful narration, as is the one after it. These are really beautiful, touching narrations. Uh, this narration is from Abu Mahdura. Now does anyone know of Abu Mahdura? Anhu. Abu Mahdura is a Sahabi. He became Muslim after Fathu Mecca. He was in Ta'if from Banu Thaqif. Or actually he's Banu Haritha, but he was in Ta'if. And Abu Mahdura became Muslim as a young man. And he became one of the Mu'addins of the Prophet Sallallahu And after he became Muslim, he was calling the Adhan at the Kaaba, uh, alternating between him and Bilal. And then when Bilal and the Prophet Sallallahu and the other Muhajirun went back to Medina, he remained in Mecca and was the Mu'addin of Mecca. And the Adhan, the, the formula, the way it's done, that he received from the Prophet Sallallahu is uh, the way, and the Iqama, it is the way the Hanafis do it. So how do the Hanafis do the Adhan and Iqama? They're the same. They're the same, except for So we have this difference between Tarjir and Tarbir and the Iqama, between the the Hanafis and the Shafi'is and others. Both of them take from the Prophet So these are differences of variation, not differences of opposition. Right? They're both correct. So he came to be the Mu'addin of Mecca. So he tells his story. This is basically his conversion story right here. So they had their conversion stories too. And this is in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad and others. He says... I left with a group and we were on one of the roads of Hunayn when we met the Messenger of Allah وسلم, returning from Hunayn. The caller to prayer, the Mu'addin, pronounced the Adhan for the prayer before the Messenger of Allah I heard the voice of the Mu'addin and we began to make fun of it. So he's not a Muslim yet. Young man, you know, like a teenager, young man, they hear someone calling the Adhan and they think it's a joke. They, you know, why is this guy shouting in this melodious way? They start making fun of it, thinking it's a joke. You know, teenagers, it could be like that sometimes. So the Messenger of Allah heard our voice and he sent for us. We stood before him. Because you understand now, Rasulullah is... He has, he has al-fatih, right? He has been granted victory, so he is in control. He says, whose voice did I hear? The entire group pointed towards me. <laughs> they, all, they all snitched. The Prophet ﷺ let them go and kept me behind. He then said, Stand and pronounce the adhan for the prayer. Now one narration says that there were some others doing it too. But his voice stood out because it was very beautiful. 
So he calls him and says, Stand and pronounce the adhan for the prayer. And having heard it, he knows what the words are. He says, So I stood, and there was nothing more loathsome to me than the Messenger of Allah, or that which he ordered me to do. So he's not even a Muslim yet. He's holding the grudges of Jahiliyyah, the old animosities that had been going on for some years that he grew up with as a kid. And he says, nothing was more loathsome to me than the Messenger of Allah وسلم, or that which he ordered me to do. But what's he going to do? I stood before the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and he recited the adhan to me himself and said, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar until the end. So he transmitted the adhan as well. He then called me after I had finished the adhan and gave me a purse, like a little pouch, with some silver in it. He placed his hand upon my forelock. You know, the forelock is here. So this is a young man. He's probably got a lot more hair than I do. And he puts his hand here like this. It's like on the side, on the forelock. He puts his hand on my forelock and wiped my face twice and my hands twice. So he puts it there. Presumably a dua. And then he wipes his face and then wipes his hands like this. He says, The hands of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, reach my navel. So he's passing the hands. Like he puts them here, wipes the face, wipes his hands, does like this. You know when people make dua and they wipe all over? He says, When he reached the navel, he said, May Allah bless you. This is someone who was laughing at the adhan. He says, May Allah bless you. And then what does he say? He says, I said, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of Allah, order me to pronounce the adhan in Mecca. So he became Muslim in this moment. This is kind of an abbreviated narration. Like he converts here in this incident. And then he asked to be made the Mu'addin of Mecca. And he replied, I have ordered you upon it. He says, then every ill feeling which I had felt against the Messenger of Allah وسلم, left me, and instead I felt love for him. The other narration of this hadith mentions another fact. In the Musnad from which this narration is drawn, uh, it doesn't mention it. But the other narration mentions something else. That when Abu Mahdura, this young man, was touched here on his forelock, he, he converts and he, and he narrates this hadith and it was known to the people, like it was, he never cut that hair. The rest of the hair he would cut, but the hair that was touched by the hand, he just let it grow, 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 grow. He, he never cut it, he just wound it up like this. So he wouldn't cut it. So... There you go. So this is the, the point of him bringing this narration, is to show the transformative effects of the touch. Right? Guidance is in the hand of Allah. But these are some of the miraculous means by which Allah guides people. The next section gives us another very beautiful narration. Um, actually, going back... Uh, Abu Mahdura was actually Banu Thaqif. I got it wrong. Because he's from Taif. 
I was thinking otherwise. He's from Banu Thaqif. Yeah, Banu Thaqif, the people of Ta'if. Yeah. The next narration is recorded by Imam Abu Nu'aym al Asfahani in Dala'il al Nubuwa, uh, as well as by Ibn Mandah. And it's from Ibn Umar radiallahu anhu. Now, the Shaykh titles this section The Prophet's Touch Removes Hypocrisy, Nifaq. Ibn Umar related, we were with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa when Harmala ibn Zayd came and sat before the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Harmala ibn Zayd is from Banu, uh, Banu uh, Haritha. Banu Haritha. And he says, so he's from the Ansar. But as you see in this narration, he considered himself to be among the Munafiqun but came to his senses. So, we group him among the Ansar, but in that moment, he was in that third category. Not the Muhajirun, not the Ansar, but the Munafiqun. He sat and said, Ya Rasulullah, my faith is here. And he points to his tongue. And Nifaq is here. And he points to his breast. And I only remember Allah a little. Because this is how Allah Ta'ala describes the munafiqun. وَلَا يَذْكُرُونَ اللَّهَ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا He says, the Prophet ﷺ remained silent. Uh, and Harmala repeated this statement. The Prophet ﷺ then took the end of Harmala's tongue and said, O oh Allah, grant him a truthful tongue. Allah A truthful tongue and a grateful heart and grant him love for me and love for those who love me and turn his affair to good. So it says here, grabs the end of his tongue. You, you can really picture it, you know, like literally putting the finger there and taking it and making dua. This is what he did. Harmala then says, Ya Rasulullah, I have brethren, I have brothers who are also munafiqun and I was their leader. Should I not guide them to you? The Prophet ﷺ said, Whoever comes to us as you have, then we seek forgiveness for them as we sought forgiveness for you. Whoever continues with his sin, then Allah has more right to them and we do not tear off the veil from anyone. So if Allah has disclosed to the Prophet ﷺ the identity of those particular munafiqun and their states, as long as it's hidden, it remains hidden. And he discloses those names only to select few. So here you have a very interesting case because you know people tend to think of the munafiqun as a monolithic whole. Right, because Allah describes them in certain ways, as if they're all just arch enemies of Islam, concealing kufr and manifesting Islam and plotting to bring down the Prophet And the reality is, there were munafiqun who were like that, and then there there were those who were wishy-washy. There were those who just had very weak faith, who listened to them and took what they said at face value without understanding. So he wasn't of those who were plotting the demise of the Prophet 
but he was among those who didn't really have strong faith and who were lending an ear to the, the chief munafiqoon and he realized that and Iman took root there but he felt that it was just on the tongue and not penetrating to the heart but he had enough awareness of that in himself to go and seek a remedy from the Prophet and we read this hadith and how the touch of the Prophet and his dua was a means of him having that nifaq removed and this is why so many of the ulama say that the key to getting rid of nifaq and being distant from nifaq is to have a very strong attachment to Rasulullah because munafiqun don't have an, an actual strong relationship or connection or any kind of devotion to the person of the Prophet and drawing guidance from him and having love for him in a deep way. They don't. They find fault. They minimize. Right? And, you know, the Quran describes different types of people. The, the Quran describes the hardcore munafiqun who are fiddarkil asfari min nar who are in the lowest parts of the hellfire. Allah Ta'ala also describes al-murjifun min ahl al-madina, you know, those who, who are basically rabble-rousers and just up to no good, and they're not fully committed to nifaq, but they're also very weak. And then Allah describes, وَفِيكُمْ سَمَّعُونَ لَهُمْ There are those among you who lend them an ear. And Allah doesn't mention names. He just mentions among you, وَفِيكُمْ سَمَّعُونَ لَهُمْ There are people among you who lend them an ear because they talk in a very captivating way. Right? وَإِذَا رَأَيْتُهُمْ تُعْجِبُكَ أَجْسَامُهُمْ وَإِن يَقُولُوا تَسْمَعْ لِقَوْلِهِمْ كَأَنَّهُمْ خُشُبٌ مُسَنَّدًا Right? If, they, if you see them, you're amazed by their appearance. And when they speak, uh, you listen attentively to what they say. But they're like wood that is propped up. So you have this in the society. And those who Allah saved, right? How did Allah save them? They go to the Messenger of Allah Because in Surah Munafiqun, Allah, Allah says it directly. Because the hypocrites do the opposite of this, right? Uh, Allah Ta'ala says that if it is said to them, to the Munafiqun, Ta'alu, yastaghfir lakum Rasulullah, go and seek forgiveness. And have the, have the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam make, seek forgiveness for you. Have him make dua for you. What do they do? They, they turn away. They lift their heads in arrogance. And you see them acting proudly and arrogantly. They turn away. So those who don't have nifaq, if it's said to them, go to the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi so he can seek forgiveness, ask Allah to forgive you, they go. So here you have, you have uh, Hurmal bin Zayd going and seeking something. So he's not really a munafiq, but he was caught up in that environment with those people. Yeah. All right. Now we come to a, a new topic. And this is the topic of the shadow of the Prophet ﷺ. This is actually a very long topic. We could do this. We could do a class on this issue for 
many, many hours, days in fact. I'll read this paragraph and then we'll try to explain it and give it some context. He says, Al-Hakim al-Tirmidhi, and this is not to be confused with Al-Imam Abu Isa Muhammad bin Sawra al-Tirmidhi, the author of the Shama'il and the Sunan. This is Al-Hakim al-Tirmidhi, he's another scholar of hadith. He has related on the authority of Dhakwan that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, did not have a shadow, neither in the sun nor under the moon. Ibn Saba' who has a, a multi-volume work on the khasais, the unique qualities, he mentions a narration in his collection that his shadow did not fall upon the ground. The author comments, he was light, there was no shadow, whether he walked in the sun or the moon. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, alludes to this in his supplication, the dua, وَجْعَلْنِي نُورًا uh, And make me light. This is a part of the dua you make when you go to the masjid. Right? Qadr Iyad has related in his shifa that from amongst his unique qualities, attributes, was that a fly would never land on him. Ibn Saba' has mentioned this in his khasais with the wording that a fly would not land on his clothes at all. He also added that lice would never bother him. So this section from where he mentions Qadr Iyad, that's kind of unrelated to the issue of the shadow. Um, how many of you grew up hearing that the Prophet ﷺ did not have a shadow? Probably all of you, right? So, I think we touched on it earlier on when we began the book. When we talk about hadith narrations, there are narrations, hadith narrations that relate to halal and haram, legal rulings, ahkam, there are hadith that relate to aqaid, core Islamic beliefs. And then there are hadith that relate to virtues, fada'il, manaqib, merits, virtuous actions, right? Now you find that historically, classically, the hadith scholars were very strict and stringent when it came to the authentication of hadith pertaining to halal and haram and ahkam and beliefs, core beliefs. They're very stringent. But when it came to hadith on virtues and merits and virtuous deeds, they were more lenient in narrating them. They're more lenient. Because those things don't pertain to halal and haram or core aqidah. They're virtues that are generally understood and accepted. Virtuous actions that are already praiseworthy from other texts. So there's a degree of leniency in those narrations when the scholars cite them that you won't find in hadith pertaining to rulings and aqaid. So when we read these narrations, they are found in virtually every classical book that goes into detail about the qualities of the Prophet now when we go to the actual chains of those narrations, when we collect all of the hadith that mention the Prophet ﷺ not having a shadow, 
from the standpoint of the hadith sciences, when we look at the asanid, the chains of narration, narrating those texts, all of those chains have certain degrees of weakness in them. But just because they're weak doesn't mean they're false. It just means that there's some weakness in them. It's not something that pertains to halal and haram or bi'qur aqaid. So if a person accepts them, that's fine. If they don't accept them because the hadith are weak, that's also fine. As long as it's done with adab, as long as it's done with respect. If a person says, well, those narrations, the chains are weak, so I'm not obliged to believe that he didn't have a shadow. That's fine. That's fine. What one is not allowed to do is to attack those narrations and denigrate them and use a language that goes from negating the, the, the authenticity to actual disrespect of the Prophet So I want to tell you all a story. And this story is related by Shaykh Muhammad bin Alawi al-Mariki rahimahullah. We talked about him a few weeks ago. The author of Mafahim Yajibun Tasahah, notions that must be corrected. So he was a teacher in the Haram, the Haram al Makki, in the 70s and 80s. And he was telling the story about an individual. Uh, I, I'm not going to give this person's name, but he was, he was known at the time, somewhat well known at the time. Uh, and I'll keep his country of origin a secret as well. I'll keep that confidential. Anyhow, this person was a very, I don't, I don't think there's, I think the best word to describe him is that he was a very low life kind of person. That's the best term I can think of. I'm, and I'm being polite there. Meaning he was a very, he had a very, he had a very strong sectarian agenda and he had a very loose tongue with people. He, he would say things about Allah and the Messenger وسلم, and the ulama from the early generations until now. Things that are just very ugly, right? Uh, so, Sheikh Muhammad bin Ali al Mariki, he tells the story. He says, yeah, this person who was known at the time, he was giving a class, and you know, for, I don't know why this person did it, but you know, the Arabic book market is kind of weird. I mean, people take books that are in manuscript form in the universities and libraries, and they type them out and add footnotes and publish them. It's a way of making money, right? This is an, a critical edition of a book that was before this. It was either just in manuscript form or it was very hard to get and it was just lithograph form. You know, the Tariq al-Hajari. So he did, this person did a, a critical edition typing out the manuscript of Imam al-Suyuti's al-Khasais al-Kubra. Imam al-Suyuti's work on the unique qualities of the Prophet so this person gets to the section about the shadow, the, the narrations that Imam Suyuti also presents, which say that the Prophet ﷺ did not have a shadow. And 
he makes, uh, he, obviously he weakens the narrations, right? Because he believes they're weak. Fair enough. But he doesn't stop there. He begins to speak insolently and disrespectfully about the Prophet ﷺ in order to disprove those hadith. And I, I, I almost don't want to even want to quote what he said. I, I don't want to quote what he said. I just want to allude to it. I'll allude to it by saying, if you go outside and you cast a shadow, you see everything. You know, your clothes are on you, so they cast a shadow. The clothes are other than you. So this person is saying that if he had no shadow, that would imply that he's not wearing clothes because the clothes are other than him and they would have to cast a shadow. But he uses very disrespectful language, you know, very rude. And subhanAllah, it wasn't very long after this that as he was going about his business in the city where he lived, you know these trams? They're like, they're like trains, but they're on a tracks going through the city. He's waiting for a tram and he was close to it and one is going by and it catches on to his garment and it pulls and it pulls him down and he gets crushed and it rips open all of his clothes and he was stark naked and dead. This is the story of Sheikh Muhammad bin Ali al-Mahdiki about that person. And he, he said at the end of the story, he said, listen, it's one thing to, to critique a narration from a hadithi standpoint. That's amana ilmiya. You know, you have a right to do that. But you have to do it with adab. You can't negate something and then start going to ugly language like that. It's unbecoming. So, this narration that he cites here, he only cites this one. There's several others. That mentions the negation of dhil, of shadow. Even if you weaken the hadith, it doesn't really, it doesn't really mean much because uh, we find in the Quran that Allah Taala has already described Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam as Sirajan Munira, laqad jaakum min Allahi nurun wa kitabun mubin. Allah Taala has described him as a luminous lamp. He's also said that there are certainly come to you from Allah a light, nur, and a clear book. A clear book. Because you need a light to read the book. Now, I once went through 25 tafasir, authoritative classical tafasir, looking up this verse. Every single one of them, from At-Tabari up until today, every single one of them have said, with narrations, that the nur here is referring to Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Every single one of them. Imam al-Tabari, Imam al-Qurtubi, Ibn Kathir, Ibn Juzay al-Kalbi, uh, Abu Hayyan, al-Baghawi, al-Alusi, al-Razi, you name it. Every one of them. They all say the same thing. Right? Because you need light with which to read the book. So, and that light is not just a metaphorical light, it's also a physical light because the Sahaba report him being munawwar. There's a, a physical perception. Um, 
nurun qaja'akum min Allahi nurun wa kitabun mubin uh, is that surah hajj i can't remember the surah yeah Sorry, it's uh, Surah Ma'idah, I, I think. No, no, no. Hmm. Let's check. Aywa, Surah Ma'idah, yeah. Surah Maidah 15 Ya ahla al-kitabi qala jaa'akum rasooluna yubayyinu lakum kathiran mimma kuntum tukhfuna min al-kitabi wa ya'fu an kathir qala jaa'akum min Allahi nurun wa kitabun mubin Yeah, Surah Maidah So there's no issue with that uh, and he mentions it here as well We have the dua of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam where he would make the dua going to the masjid uh, Oh Allah Place in front of me light, and behind me light, and to the left of me light, to the right of me light, my, me light, my, uh, the right of me light, put a uh, place with my eyes light, and then the end he says, Waja'alni nura, make me light. So, we have a book here uh, written by Sheikh Jibril Haddad, who's a brilliant researcher and scholar, and it's all collecting the narrations from the tafasir and the ahadith and the athar of the sahaba and the poetry, even uh, the, the poetry before Nubuwa from Abdul Muttalib, or for Abu Talib rather, mentioning this light, this notion of light. Uh, and it's very detailed. So I mean, we could, you could go through it. It's not a controversial issue. Oh, Bashar sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but he's described as munawwar, very clear. And so after that, he mentions this passage from Qadir Iyad. Now later, he's going to summarize some of those points that the scholars mentioned, where they put them all on a list. So we'll, we'll come back to that uh, later, inshallah ta'ala. So we've, we've discussed the, the height, the eyesight, the hearing, the arms, the sight, the sight hearing, yeah, um, the touch, and now the lack of a shadow. Now we talk about the noble blood of the Prophet wasallam. The noble blood. He says, Bazar Abu Ya'ala, Al-Tabarani, Al-Hakim, and Al-Bayhaqi all relate on the authority of Abdullah ibn Subayr radiallahu anhu that he went to the Prophet وسلم, while he was being cupped. You know, hijama? Right. When he was finished, he said, O oh, Abdullah, take this blood and pour it out somewhere where no one will see you. Abdullah drank it. Now, there's, from this we understand he left. He was away and no one could see him, and then he drank it. When he returned, the Prophet ﷺ asked him, 
Oh, Abdullah, what did you do? He replied, I placed it in the most hidden place where it would be hidden from the people. The Prophet ﷺ replied, Perhaps you drank it? He replied, Yes. He replied, Woe to the people from you and to you from them. Right? We therefore believe, this is the Rawi, the narrator, we therefore believe that the strength that we saw in Abdullah was from that blood. Okay. This is this occurred on more than one occasion. Now, so let's make a couple of points here. Uh, everything from the Prophet ﷺ is tahir. This is the position in all of the four madhahib. There's no legal consequence for us in knowing that, right? Not in this present day. But they still mention it in the books of fiqh, in the Kitab al-Tahara, in the four madhahib, in the mutawalat, the longer books, they mention, وَفَضَلَاتُهُ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ كُلُّهَا طَاهِرًا They'll say things like that. That the things that uh, emit from him or come from him are all ritually pure. They're not, uh, it's not considered najasa, right? That's point number one. Point number two, the blood of the Prophet ﷺ that was removed by way of hijama was not dirty blood. It was a medical procedure. He established it as a practice for the community. He's establishing a precedent. But it's not, you know, we would say it's dirty blood. That's point number two. Point number three, Abdullah bin Zubair did this for a blood that is pure from the purest of the pure of humanity. If you or I do this for anybody else, we're nasty. <laughs> Not that anyone's thinking of that, and it wouldn't be allowed, right? But there are certain exceptions when it comes to the Prophet ﷺ. There's exceptions. If anyone wants to do that now, it would be gross, because no one else's blood is, is pure like his, or anything like his. So, this is one narration. Another narration says that anyone uh, in whose body my blood mixes with theirs will not be touched by the fire. Right? So this is a glad tidings for Abdullah bin Zubair as well. And the, some of the ulama use that narration also as a proof for the iman of Sayyidah Amina the mother of the Prophet ﷺ, because he was in her womb, so the blood is mixing with the blood and these things. So it would apply to her from that understanding. So that is an indirect proof. Now Abdullah bin Zubayr after this was known to be very ferocious in battle. He was unstoppable. He was super brave, valorous, uh, strong in battle. And they used to attribute that to this incident where he, he drank that leftover blood in the, in the cup. How much was it? Allah knows best. But if you look at the way cupping used to be done, they would use, back then, uh, they didn't have glass. They didn't, they didn't have glass things. So 
they would use these uh, like goat horns that are hollowed out. So they, it, they would hollow it out, and then at the tip, it will be an opening. So they make the incision. There's the suction done by the, the goat horn itself, itself from the mouth of the person. Then they make the incision and it's drawn like that. Uh, they still do that in places like Yemen, or at least when I was there in the 90s. I saw it done with the, the goat horn like this. That's more likely how it was done back then as well. As far as how much blood would have come out, probably an insubstantial amount. You know, Allah knows best, but it could have been like, you know, like this much in a cup, very little. That's typically how it is. Okay. Now this is another thing to mention about this. Um, if a person hears this narration and their first instinct is to think, disgusting, we, we want to be careful <laughs> because this is the Prophet People have to be educated. Everything is pure. If they know that everything is pure from him, then they shouldn't have a problem with this. It doesn't mean that you want to go and narrate this to people whose iman is very weak or who don't have knowledge. You don't want them to fall into kufr. Right, there's, there's people, their level of iman is so low, their knowledge is so minimal, you almost don't want them to open their mouth to say things because they end up uttering kufr. And if you narrate certain things to them, it could be so problematic to them because of their own frame of reference. It's not a frame of reference from iman and guidance, it's just something else entirely, that they reject it or they recoil from it. And then they say something that takes them outside of Islam. So you have to be careful with these kinds of narrations. Um, what time is it? We've got 10 more minutes. Okay, we'll finish the perspiration section, inshallah. So the next narration, this will be the last one for today, is the blessed perspiration of the Prophet. Question, why doesn't he say sweat? Because vocabulary. Choose the best possible word. In Arabic, it's all the same. Araq. We would say that sweat, but perspiration is better. It's more beautiful. He cites the hadith from Sahih Muslim. Muslim relates on the authority of Anas radiallahu anhu who said the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam visited us and took a short nap qaylula he began to perspire does anyone uh, know why he perspired it's hot <laughs> have you ever been in Medina in the summer Yeah, the, the you know it used to be volcanic plains. It's very hot, even at night. That's number one. Number two is he's sleeping on a leather mat, even though it's inside. It's out of the sun. It's still hot. So this is why. He says he began to to perspire. So my mother brought a container and collected the perspiration. How is that possible? It's because it was a leather mat. It was leather, which means that it, the perspiration will bead up along the creases and edges. So they're able to you know, get the applicator and the ball and just kind of 
push it into the bottle like this. That's what they would do. And when the Messenger of Allah woke up, he said, Ya Um Sulaim, the mother of Anas, what is this that you're doing? She replied, We use your perspiration as our perfume, and it is the most fragrant of perfumes. So they would mix it with their perfumes and make it more fragrant. The Prophet would visit Um Sulaim and take a nap at her house. So a mat was laid out for him upon which he would sleep. He would perspire a lot. So she would collect his perspiration, add it in the perfume and in containers. He would ask, Ya Um Sulaim, what is this? She would reply, I mixed your perspiration with my perfume. Same narration. His perspiration was more fragrant than any other perfume to such an extent that when he would walk and his companions wanted to know where he had been, they would follow his fragrance down the streets and catch up with him. May the blessings and peace of my Lord be upon him. When he placed his hand upon the head of a child, the fragrance would linger for a week. They could smell the fragrance on the child's head for over a week or a week. In addition to this, the hairs that were touched by the Prophet ﷺ never turned gray throughout their life. Yes, yeah, so Abu Mahdura, that lock was black, while the rest of his hair turned gray as an old man. That, there's a narration about this too. So, such is the barakah. Um, he says, people became familiar with this miracle. So after his passing away, وسلم, the companions would seek blessings whenever they became ill from those children or men upon whose heads was the sign of the hand of the Messenger of Allah You know, they would want to touch the lock of Abu Mahdura. Another Sahabi, he, uh, I'm trying to remember the narration, it, anyhow it escapes me. There's a similar narration like this, where, uh, oh, I remember now, it was a tabi'i, I can't remember the Sahabi's name, but the tabi'i from the second generation, he never saw the Prophet ﷺ, but he knew a Sahabi who had kissed the hand of the Prophet ﷺ, and who had shaken the hand of the Prophet ﷺ. So he would want to kiss his hand, because that is the hand that, sh that sh shook the hand of the Prophet ﷺ. He says, Thus they would place their hands on that place and touch it upon their illness, and they were cured with the permission of Allah. This method remained effective despite the number of years that had passed by. So this is min akhbar and mustafidah, as they say. It's from multiple narrations. You find from multiple channels and narrations how the Sahaba would save these things and pass them on to their descendants who would keep them and pass them on. And of course, you know, things get lost. People die. People are buried with some of these things and we don't see them. We have, uh, we have Talha catching the hairs that were shaved from the, side, the, the right and left side during the Hajj that he was then ordered to distribute among the Muslims. Those are being kept the perfume bottles that are being kept, people would then 
take the perfume that had that perspiration and they would add drops of that into people, other people's perfumes, you know, just to get a little bit of that. It's, it's like, you know, homeopathy? Like, you can dilute something, but the effect doesn't really diminish. The effect is still there. Actually, the more you dilute it, the more stronger. Yeah, and homeopathy. homeopathy. Yeah. And there's, there's a narration in which a man came and embraced Islam, and he was from a faraway place, presume, I think the Nejd. And the Prophet ﷺ uh, performed wudu and gave him that water in a container and told him to take it back and said to use this water, mix it with your water, and when you run out, add more water to it. So there's that understanding that if you're adding more water to it or if you add perfume to something that had that, it's not diminishing it in reality. It's just stretching it out more and more and more. So th- these are, mashallah, beautiful narrations, uh, all showing just the uniqueness of what Allah gave His beloved sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It's all from Allah Taala, and there's a footnote I was going to read maybe next time uh, when we talk about we go to the next section within Taala on uh, a question that had had me wondering for a while. And that is, there are so many narrations about the Prophet ﷺ wearing perfume. He would wear atar when going out. So the question that came to my mind when I was, when I was translating the shama'il and doing the commentary, the question that came to my mind early on was, if his perspiration is a better scent than these perfumes, why would he wear the perfumes? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll read the footnote. I'll read the footnote. خلاص. I don't want to leave you hanging. And I, and I spoke to some ulama about this, and I, I had, you know, they pointed me in the right direction, and I thought more about it. Um, so this was, the, the, I mean, this is the commentary. The problem with this commentary, I guess it's a minor problem, is that the commentary is very small. It's very hard for people to read. Uh, and I wish it wasn't that way. It says, uh, the perfuming of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is an incredible subtlety of his character that deserves deep reflection. The Prophet Muhammad وسلم, has a natural fragrance that emits from his blessed body and he does not need perfume to make himself smell divine. And he smelled divine. Nice. It is narrated that when the Prophet ﷺ would make his way somewhere, his blessed presence would be known by the wafts of fine scent that would travel through the streets. Whenever a person walked a path after the Prophet ﷺ had walked it, he would know from the fine smell of the Prophet's blessed perspiration that he had been there, that he had been that he had been there. Imam al-Bayhaqi recorded in As-Sunan al-Kubra. The Prophet ﷺ will go to the home of Umm Sulaim, and that's the hadith, Umm Sulaim. So the question is, why did he apply perfume to his blessed body when his perspiration smells finer than the finest of scents? Firstly, here's the, there's a few points to this answer. Firstly, it is evident that by applying perfume, 
the Prophet was establishing it as a sunnah for his community to follow after him. Thus it is recommended for men specifically to wear perfume on Friday, the two Eids, when putting on the ihram garb before Hajj and Umrah, when attending gatherings of remembrance and sacred knowledge, when reciting the Qur'an, when sitting to invoke Allah, when spending intimate time with one's spouse, with one's wife. It is recommended for women to wear perfume in their homes. Secondly, smell is the most powerful sense in human beings. You ever smelled something out of nowhere and it takes you right back to when you were four years old? There's a certain, it could be a food, it could be something the way a building smelled, it's weird. It's the most powerful scent. So it's the most powerful sense in human, in, uh, uh, in human beings. The sense of smell is closely linked with memory. That's why you smell something and it triggers a memory. I, I heard some, someone say that if you go on a vacation somewhere, uh, bring just one bottle of perfume. You know, if you apply it, you know, all the time, just one bottle, just apply it. And then when you go back home and smell it again later on, it will remind you of that trip. I think this is true. There's a particular scent that I, a perfume that I would wear when I first became Muslim. Like some cheap bottle of some atar, you know, the roll-on. And if I smell it now, I feel all nice and innocent. <laughs> like new. Because it, it was associated with that early experience. So, so it's associated with memory. And smells often trigger memories of experiences. The sense of smell is also highly emotive. Much of our emotional responses to things are governed by association and temperament, which is why different people can have completely different perceptions of the same smell. In perfume, for example, what one person finds aromatic and nice, another may find overpowering or nauseating. Thirdly, the bestowed scent, wahbi, of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is celestial in nature and not of this lower world. It is not biological as such. In fact, every biological component of the Prophet وسلم, in its essential essence is mysteriously celestial. Just as he is the, most, is the best and most beautiful of Allah's creation, his blessed scent is likewise the finest scent in Allah's creation, paradise or otherwise. Right, uh, skipping some of the details here. Um, fourthly, the beauties of the Prophet ﷺ do not manifest in this world to their fullest extent. For if they did, no one would be able to withstand the intensity of their sublimity, purity, and effulgent lights. If humanity were able to behold the full extent of the Prophet's beauties or smell, I realize how long this thing, this thing is. His blessed scent, as it really is, would defeat the purpose of having faith in the unseen and making a conscious choice to believe. Uh, this is basically saying that it will be so powerful that how can you deny the truthfulness of this person? It's just too much. The finest smelling, overpowering scent, that's one thing. And these are possible answers. Uh, where are we? Here's the answer that I like the most. 
the wear, by wearing perfume, though inferior to his natural scent, the Prophet ﷺ facilitated access for those who were to come after him. There is no worldly scent to which his natural scent can be compared. So if he did not apply worldly scent, how would the companions have been able to describe his scent and relate it to us? Even though mixed with scents of this world, the most they could say was that his blessed scent was finer than musk and ambergris. So the idea is he wears scent to establish it as a sunnah, but also it, it, it's a means of having some access. Like we, you, we're not around to smell his actual scent as it was, but we do know that he wore musk. We do know that he wore these scents and that when we use them or smell them, it gives us some, some approximation of what he would have smelled like. So that's assisting us in having some familiarity with something that we wouldn't be familiar with otherwise because of the separation of time. So those are just different answers. And these are all possible answers. These are just reflections on possible reasons. And Allah Ta'ala knows best, ultimately. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I just remember learning years ago from a shaykh because somebody questioned why would the Prophet be alone with her? And one of the shaykh were talking about the fact that in some books it's very dangerous because they would say stuff like, oh, well, it's the Prophet, so it's an exception to the rule. But the shaykh was saying that when you do your research, you realize that she was the aunt of the Prophet ﷺ, so that's why he could go to her house and yeah. be alone yeah. with her. Yeah. I just wanted to, and I can't remember, was it like I think through nursing or something like that? Yeah, I believe nursing, yeah. Yeah. Another question? Yes. <clears throat> you just stated that a fly would not ever go on his clothes. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, how could Abu Jahl manage to put dirty and prayers on so it's the, the fly is uh, an insect and the fly has its own little fly will, you know. It decides to fly here and then flies away and to go there. So the fly is like any other creature. Bird, beast of prey, beast of burden, predator, animal. And that they're living out there their nature. So these creatures, they're not morally accountable, but they respond in a certain way to the most chosen of Allah's creation. Whereas human beings, we have the ability to choose right and wrong, to believe or disbelieve, to accept or reject, and Abu Jahl chose to reject and he chose to disbelieve and he's responsible for his actions. So the difference is that this is him doing it as an offensive action towards the Prophet ﷺ causing him harm whereas the fly would never make such a choice and out of honor and respect this is what they say they just they wouldn't get near him right because their function would they were not going to land on him out of respect for him. This is what they say. 